Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good morning to you guys. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke Chapter 2 is where we'll be at here in just a bit. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of ours. There should be one in the rack underneath the seat nearby. If you use one of those Bibles, the page number will be up on the screen to help you find it. Um, If you are brand new around here, we are on week four of a series called Not What You'd Expect. And really the idea behind this series is that the details and the circumstances and the people surrounding the story of the very first Christmas are really anything except what you would expect. They're unusual, they're out of the ordinary, they're odd in many ways, and they're precisely not what you would expect them to be for the type of story that this story is. In fact, I saw this week that River and Rail, a local theater company here in Knoxville, is putting on their annual production of a play called The Unusual Tale of Mary and Joseph's Baby. Uh, And if you hadn't seen that, I would totally recommend that you go see it. I think it's a fantastic production, but I love that title, right? The Unusual Tale of Mary and Joseph's Baby, because that's precisely what this story is. It's very, very unusual and unexpected in nearly every way. In the story, God works in these really unpredictable and unforeseen ways. And I think in many ways, that's what makes the story of Christmas so compelling in the Bible. And you know, today, the the story that we're going to cover this morning that you guys just heard read is really what I would say is the least what you'd expect out of the entire narrative. Today, we are going to cover how and where Jesus's birth actually takes place. Today, we discover that this long-awaited Messiah, which is a a word that means the long-awaited king or the anointed king of the world, that this figure who would usher in God's rule and God's reign over all of creation, who would set things right once and for all for God's people across the world, that that king, that figure in history, arrives on the scene in a very not-so-impressive fashion. In fact, not impressive at all. He is born to poor parents who are displaced by an ill-timed census in what most likely was a cave somewhere in the side of a mountain and laid in an animal's feeding trough to rest. That's it. That's the story. That's how the king of the world would arrive on the scene, according to the Bible. Now, I don't know that we fully appreciate just how odd that story is. I think a lot of us at least have some level of familiarity with the story, and so we don't fully recognize just how weird those details are for this type of story. So just to try and help us wrap our minds around the unusual nature of this story, let's try a thought experiment for a second. Imagine with me that you live in a country rife with political infighting and discord and dysfunction, and it seems like injustice is everywhere. Some of you guys are like, this is not taking much imagination so far. 
But just imagine that that's the scenario you're in. Maybe even tenfold what you and I experience in the U.S., right? That's the situation. And into that situation, you start hearing murmurs that there is a person out there who is going to fix things across this nation. He or she is going to set things right once and for all everywhere. There's a person out there who has the authority and the ability and the influence and the resources that is needed to remedy all that has gone wrong. And so once you get over your initial cynicism and disbelief, right, because we don't like that narrative very much, just as modern Americans, you start thinking at that point, okay, awesome, Let, let's figure out who this person is, right? Let's get them connected. Let's get this thing rolling as much as we can. Let's, let's get them running for office. Let's get them a platform or like bare minimum, let's get them in a room with all the other power players so we can make this thing happen. Like let's get Elon Musk involved somehow as an investor and let's just do this thing. Like, let's see what they're really capable of doing. Only then you find out that the person who is going to set things right in the world is currently a toddler growing up in a government housing project outside of Philadelphia. Now, nothing against toddlers and nothing against housing projects in Philadelphia, that's not exactly how you would expect that story to play out, right? So at that point, you start thinking, okay, so maybe this is like a rags to riches story. Right? We love those types of stories. Princess Bride, Crazy Rich Asians. Like, we love that story, right? We can get on board with a rags to riches story. So you're thinking, okay, this kid is going to grow up. He's going to get scholarshiped into a great school, maybe, then go to law school. And once they do all that, that's when they're really going to start making waves in the world. Rags to riches, right? Only then you find out it's not a rags to riches story at all, it's a rags to rags story. The plan is for this person to remain poor their entire life, never to attend any major university at all. In fact, the plan is for this person to never travel more than a day's journey from the housing projects that they grew up in. That's the plan, even more, not what you would expect. So maybe then you're thinking, okay, so this person is just going to like spend some time in obscurity, spend some years of their life in obscurity so that they can learn how to work for a living, right? Achieve that rugged blue-collar image that you need to appeal to all the voters. Like, you can see that campaign ad now, right? Like, I worked with my hands for 25 years, and now I want to work for you, right? That would work. Maybe that's what they're doing, is they're trying to appeal to everybody. But that's not it either. In fact, after a few years of relative obscurity, this person is going to be killed. Executed, in fact. There's going to be a low-key effort to frame them for something that they did not do. And corrupt leaders in the upper echelon of society are going to see to it that this person doesn't make it past their early 30s. Just one more example of the corrupt powers that be victimizing and trampling on the poor, right? And I could go on with the parallel, But I'll stop there because I think you are getting the point, right? Are you starting to see why Jesus as the Messiah seemed like such an odd choice to the nation of Israel? Why he seemed like an odd and even confusing choice for a Messiah? It it just didn't make a ton of sense. Like Israel was expecting this leader, this Messiah to like make waves in the world. And Jesus' appearance 
sure did seem a lot more like just dropping a pebble in an ocean. It just wasn't what they expected to see happen at all. And yet, this was precisely how God orchestrated the details of Jesus' arrival. A baby lying in a manger, born to poor parents who did not even have a place to stay. But here's the thing. I would argue, not only was this the right way for God to go about things in the story, it's the absolute best possible news that he went about things in this way. For you and for me and for people down throughout history. And before we're done today, I want to try to show you why I believe that about this story. But first things first, let's just spend some time walking through the narrative to sort of grasp how all of these details came about. So if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Luke, the author of this book, sets the scene for us in these verses. A decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome at the time, for everyone to be registered. This was essentially an ancient version of a census. Now, one thing for you to know about Luke, the author, is that he is a researcher and a historian at heart. That's who Luke is. He wants to, as much as he can in this book, to detail out the precise historical circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Now, I tell you that because some people read the story of the first Christmas of Jesus' birth, and they think it reads a little bit more like a legend, or a myth of sorts. I mean, someone born to a virgin mom, like that just doesn't seem realistic to our modern minds. And so some people would say what we're reading here is a myth of sorts. But if you're paying attention to the story, Luke doesn't really present it that way. Not at all, right? This is not how you start a legend or a myth. You start a legend or a myth with words like a long, long time ago or in a galaxy far, far away, right? That's how you start a myth. That's not how this story starts. Luke starts this story with a historical figure, Caesar Augustus, issuing a decree for a historical event, a registration. And even more specifically than that, Luke tells us which registration this is exactly. So these are all verifiable historical events. So apparently we're not talking about a legend or a myth at all. What we're talking about here is history, however unbelievable it might seem to some people. So next, we find out how our characters fit into this particular moment in history. Picking it up back in verse 4, here's what it says. And Joseph, Joseph we met in last week's teaching, if you were here for that, uh, Marcus walked us through the story of Joseph. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. That child, of course, being Jesus himself. Now, to us, verses 4 and 5 might just sound like Luke is being overly detailed in how he's telling the story, right? That he's just being pedantic or something. There's actually a lot more going on here, though. Almost all of the details in those two verses are 
Luke showing that the birth of Jesus fulfills multiple Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah would be. He's dropping clues along the way about who this child is and would be exactly. It would be sort of like if today you and I were reading a novel and the author described a jolly old man with a big white beard who rode on a, on a sleigh pulled by reindeer. Like He would never have to say Santa because you and I would pick up on the context clues, right? We would know the, the person that this author is writing about is Santa. It's sort of the same way with what Luke is doing here. He's dropping all of these hints as he introduces the story that would signal to his audience, this guy I'm talking about, this child that is being born, is the Messiah. He's the one. He's the king that we have all been waiting for. Keep reading in verse 6. And while they were there for the census, the time came for her to give birth. Nothing quite caps off an exhausting road trip like going into labor, right? Got to imagine that's what every pregnant woman wants to happen at the end of a road trip. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. All right, so I've got to do a little bit of unpacking these details here. So the the word inn in that passage, when it says that there was no place for them in the inn, that might be a little bit misleading to us in our modern context because I think it makes most of us think that we're like talking about an ancient version of like a Motel 6 or something. Like Mary and Joseph went from hotel to hotel seeing if there was any room and there wasn't. It's not exactly what the passage means. The word in here could be translated guest house or spare room. The NIV actually translates it with something like that. The point being, usually when you traveled back to your hometown, you would stay with your extended family, much like many of us are probably about to do in the next couple weeks, right? We go home and we stay with our extended family, usually in their spare room or their guest room. But evidently, there was no such space available for Mary and Joseph in the story. Now, that could have been for any number of different reasons. We don't know exactly. It could have been that they were shunned by their family because they were pregnant out of wedlock. That could be why there's no room for them. It could be because they were poor and they weren't exactly esteemed by their family in the first place. Uh, It could have been that they just got there late and the house was already full. We don't know exactly why there's not room for Mary and Joseph. And I think it's probably best not to speculate too much on what we don't know, right? What we do know from these details, though, is that the conditions were less than ideal for Jesus' arrival on the scene, right? What we know is that Jesus was born outside the comforts of even first century life, which was not much to begin with. He was likely born in a cave, and was laid in a manger, which we think was a feeding trough for animals. This is the setting that Jesus, the Messiah, the king of the world, the one who would set things right once and for all for God's people, this is the setting that he is born into. So what do you think? Is that the way you would expect for a king to make his, his appearance? The word underwhelming certainly comes to mind for me, Right? But just in case that wasn't underwhelming enough for you, the story actually continues on that trajectory for a little bit longer. The next part of the passage, what we're going to read about is that the group of people to whom God chooses to announce the appearance of the Messiah is shepherds. Now, keep in mind, 
this is not only the biggest news in Israel this year, it is the biggest news in the history of the world, right? That's not an overstatement. I mean, this is the one that everyone has been waiting on. This is big time news, to say the least. So you would think once he arrives on the scene, this is when you crank up the publicity, right? Like this is when you make a big deal out of it. That's what we would do today. Like let's get the biggest journalists we know working for the best news outlet around. Let's get them to publish a story. Let's do 90 minutes, your prime time, one-on-one with Mary, the mother of the Messiah. Like let's make sure everybody knows about this. That's what we would do Today, I mean, for instance, that's how the nation of Rome did things at the time. If they conquered a new territory, if they won a battle, if something big happened for the nation of Rome, then that's when the propaganda machine kicked into high gear, right? You made sure everybody knew about it. They would plaster it all over the city streets. There were trumpets, there were drums, there was fanfare. All of this happened because you were going to know about what just happened in the nation of Rome. Not so much with the kingdom of God, though. This Messiah, this king of the world, makes his appearance and God chooses to announce it first to shepherds. Blue collar nobodies out in the middle of a field somewhere. Also a little bit unexpected. Look back at the passage with me, picking it up in verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So the first to hear the announcement of the king's arrival, the inbreaking kingdom of God, are seemingly random, definitely unnamed shepherds out in a field. Now, I need you to do your best to get the image of shepherds that you have in your mind from all the Christmas plays out of your head, okay? I know it's going to be difficult, but I need you to get that image out of your head. We are not talking here about gentle, elderly men who sort of look like if your grandpa was a hippie. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what shepherds were in this particular day and age. I know that's how they get depicted sometimes, but that's not how it went down. Shepherds in this day and age were unsavory. They were uncouth. They were scrappy and even outright shady characters. At times, think like the morality of a foul mouthed sailor mixed with the rough image of like a biker gang member. That's what we're talking about when we imagine shepherds. That's the type of crowd that we're talking about Jesus announcing this news to. Nobody looked at shepherds back in the day and thought, now there's a group of people I'd like to spend some time with. Nobody thought that. Nobody thought, now this is royalty right here. Anybody who's anybody hangs out with shepherds. That's not who shepherds were, quite the opposite, in fact. So it seems odd that these shepherds would be the first to know about the arrival of Jesus. That, that's not really the way to get good publicity if you're God of the universe and you're orchestrating this thing. And yet that's precisely who God picks to announce this news to Now, look with me at what the angel tells the shepherds in verse 10 of our passage. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, if you like to underline or highlight or circle things in your Bible, I want you to take note of two different phrases in those verses that we just read. The first one is the phrase good news. Feel free to underline or highlight that. Even if you use one of our Bibles, just go ahead and underline it. It'll be helpful for the next person, right? Good news is the first phrase I want you to notice. The second phrase I want you to notice is all the people. All the people. Feel free to underline or highlight that. The coming of Jesus, apparently, the birth of Jesus, is good news for all the people. So we started off this morning saying that God going about things in this way, that him going about the arrival of Jesus in the way that he did, is not only the right way for him to go about it, it's the best possible news that he went about it in this way. So now, with most of our passage covered, I'd like to unpack for you why I said that. And it's because the arrival of Jesus on the scene is good news for all people. Good news for all people. First, it is good news because of how altogether different and opposite it is from every other life philosophy that you will hear, from every other message that you will encounter on planet Earth. It is the polar opposite. Here's what I mean. Let me give you a lightning fast crash course of every world religion, every wisdom tradition, every life philosophy that is out there. Does that sound audacious enough for you guys? It's actually pretty similar how they all work. There are three steps to any religion, any life philosophy, any wisdom tradition. First step is that you have an ultimate. You have an ultimate. Now it can be different things for different traditions, but maybe this ultimate is a god or the gods. So it's Allah, it's Krishna, it's Brahman. There's a god that is up there, that is lofty, unattainable. And somehow you have to figure out how to get to that ultimate. For some traditions, it's not so much a god as it is a state of existence. So if you're Buddhist, it's uh, nirvana is up here. Or it's some type of spiritual enlightenment that you're trying to arrive at. There's some kind of ultimate. Even in modern secularism, it's ultimate happiness, right? Or it's freedom, total autonomy, something like that. Romantic relationship. There's always some type of ultimate up there. Something that you are trying to get your way to. That's step one to any life philosophy. Step two is that there is a gap. There's a gap. There is always some sort of distance between where you currently are and where you need to get, how you need to get to that ultimate. The thing you want is lofty, it's up there, and you currently are not up there. You're down here. So one way or another, you have to ascend your way to that ultimate. That's step two. Step three to any life philosophy is what we'll call religion. Religion. Religion is the system of activities, the things you must do or participate in in order to arrive at your ultimate, in order to ascend your way to the top, whatever the top is. 
So maybe it's a set of ethical principles you have to follow, or it's a pilgrimage that you have to go on, or it's riding on bikes and going door to door at people's houses, or it's penance, or it's indulgences, or it's refraining from pleasure in all its forms. Maybe in some traditions, it's like secret meetings with Tom Cruise. I don't know. One way or another, there's a set of things that you have to do in order to get from where you currently are to your ultimate. That's what religion is. In other words, religion is a ladder. That's right, we're using props. This might go great. We might do this a lot more, or we might never do it again, depending on whether I fall off of this ladder or not. So, religion is a ladder. And a ladder is the steps you have to participate in in order to ascend to whatever your ultimate is. It's the process that you have to participate in in order to get there. So if we were just going to adapt Christianity into this framework, if we were gonna kind of force Christianity into this idea, this concept, as many people do, if we're gonna act out what many people think Christianity is, it would be something like this. You're down here, so you need to read your Bible. Take a step up. You need to pray. Maybe pray without ceasing, right? Um, Next, you need to stay pure. You need to tithe. You need to follow all of the rules, right? Do not covet. Is anybody getting nervous yet? (laughs) You need to love other people, right? Golden rule. Okay, I'm not going to do that one, but you guys get the point. So that is religion, right? The more things that you are able to do, the closer you get to your ultimate. That's not what Christianity is, but it's what an awful lot of people think Christianity is, and it's what every other tradition, every other religion teaches in some form. You have to climb your way, you have to ascend your way to the top of the ladder. Now, there's a few problems with religion. One, I think most of us are familiar with, one is that when you are at the top of the ladder, you inherently look down your nose at everybody else, right? I mean, if you're up here, and everybody else is down there, that means by necessity that you are better than them, right? So it breeds condescension. It breeds self-righteousness. It breeds arrogance because you're up here and everybody else is down there. It's the first problem. The second problem is that religion only really works for people who can climb. It only works for people who can climb. So religion only works for the people with the resources and the talents and the abilities and the connections and the savvy and the self-discipline and the self-control that it takes to ascend the ladder. Only those people can succeed at religion. If you don't have the resources, if you don't have the talents, if you don't have the abilities or the connections, well, then you're screwed, right? Because the system was actually designed for you to fail. Religion only works for those who climb. And here's the part of religion, here's the problem with religion that really nobody talks about. 
when you're at the top of the ladder, you are terrified of what might happen if you fell. Sort of like I am right now in real life, right? (laughs) The problem is that when you have ascended your way to the top of the ladder, you are terribly anxious about what might happen if you messed up, if you took the wrong step, if people really found out who you were underneath the surface, underneath the facade that you've set up. If you were to take the wrong step, that's a long way to fall. Those are the problems with religion. The problem with the system that so many people think work in all of its different forms. But here is why the arrival of Jesus on the scene is such good news for all people. The reason it is good news for all people is that the system of Jesus, the framework that is becoming a disciple of Jesus, is not about ascending a ladder. It's not about climbing a ladder. The belief in Jesus is about the God who came down the ladder. The system of Jesus is about a God, the lofty, the unattainable, the unreachable God, most high, right? It's about how that God in Jesus became attainable, became reachable. Eugene Peterson in his translation of the Bible says that God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The system of Jesus is about a God, the most high, who chose to make himself reachable to the everyday man and woman in the world. It's about a God who was up here, but instead descended the ladder, was born to poor parents in a cave in the side of a mountain. He was laid in a feeding trough to rest. And as he became one of them, he actually showed what God was like. He showed the type of people for whom God came. But he didn't just start by being born into those circumstances. He didn't stop there. He actually went further than that. Then for his entire life, he chose to hang out with the everyday man and woman. He spent most of his time around the poor, the sick, the handicapped, the ill, the people that nobody else wanted to spend time around. And then ultimately, he would descend all the way to the cross. He would be hung between two criminals to die. That's the message of the gospel. That's why Jesus' arrival on the scene is such good news. Are you beginning to see why Jesus had to arrive in the way that he did? It's precisely because of who he came for who he desired to include. In fact, I would argue that what we just talked about is exactly what Paul wants us to think about when he writes this in Philippians 2. Take a look at what he says here. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is what Paul wants you to imagine when you read that verse. So, you're beginning to see why now the story of Christmas had to be so underwhelming, at least from our perspective. It's actually written that way by design. It happened that way by design because the gospel, the good news is for all people. It is for anybody and everybody, even and especially the broken and the lowly 
and the undesirables and the have-nots. That's how it can be good news for all people. So with that, let's round out our passage. The angel delivering the news to shepherds says this, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angels say, this will be a sign of the appearance of the Savior. And not only of his appearance, but of the type of Savior that this Savior will be. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Another way of saying that is that the medium is the message. The way that Jesus came tells us who he came for. His arrival on the scene was insignificant by most people's standards. But that's because he came even and especially for those who are seen as insignificant. That's the message of Christmas. And the irony is that what God did on Christmas was anything but insignificant. So in light of all that, I want to just leave you with a couple things. First, if you are the type who is constantly aware of the fact that you're just not all that good at climbing, that you don't know how to do that, you don't have the self-discipline, you don't have the self-control, you don't have the awareness, you don't have the resources you need, you don't have the connections you need to climb to the top of the ladder in front of you, I think you need to know this morning that that's not the type of people Jesus came for anyway. Jesus is not expecting you to ascend the ladder to get to him. You don't need any of those things to be a part of God's kingdom. God's kingdom has not appeared for the savvy or the well-connected or the talented or the impressive. God's kingdom has actually come for the broken, the weak, the frail. So if you find yourself continually discouraged by your inability to climb, here's the good news. You don't need to be able to climb to find God. God and Jesus actually came to find you. He's right there with you already. It's in the very name that they're told to give Jesus, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Not God that we might be able to reach one day. God with us right here, right now. God came to find us. That's the good news. And second, if you're the type that is actually pretty good at climbing, If that's you, no doubt we've probably got people here in our church that are just that. You do have the resources. You do have the connections. You do have the gifts and the abilities that it takes to climb quite well up the ladder, whatever that looks like. And if that's you, you might be thinking in all of this, okay, well, what about me, right? Like, can't I be included in God's kingdom too? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can be included in God's kingdom But to use Jesus' language from elsewhere in the Gospels, anyone who wants to be the greatest must become the least. Anyone who wants to become the greatest must become servant of all. You can be in God's kingdom if you are savvy, if you're put together, if you're impressive, but only if you're willing to come down the ladder with Jesus. It's the only way it works. So it's wonderful that you have resources and abilities and gifts and talents. It's fine for you to be impressive just so long as you don't think God's acceptance of you is based on how impressive you are because it's not. 
That's not the type of people that Jesus came for. God does not accept resumes for membership in his kingdom. He accepts brokenness. Psalm 51 verse 17 says it like this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So feel free to be impressive. Feel free to be good at things. Feel free to be talented at things. Just don't buy the lie that that's what wins you a place at the table in God's kingdom. Because God isn't found at the top of the ladder. He's found at the bottom of the ladder. That's what Jesus' not-so-impressive arrival is all about. Let's pray together. Father, I know that um, this message for some of us is a really difficult one to hear because the way you and your kingdom work are so polar opposite from how the world's systems and structures work. But God, I pray that for many of us in the room that don't feel like we have the resources or the gifts or abilities that other people around us have, I pray that this would be precisely what it was meant to be, which is good news. Good news to all people. And God, for, for others of us in the room that, um, that actually do have the resources and do have the abilities, and God, maybe we're fairly impressive people by the world's standards. God, I pray that this will be an opportunity to remember that you use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God, that you came even and especially for the lowly, for the have-nots for the rejected, for the broken. And so God, I pray that all of us, regardless of what camp we're in, regardless of what we think about ourselves or what the world thinks of us, that we would this morning find a brokenness. God, that would bring us more fully into your kingdom. God, I pray that we would learn how to come before you with completely empty hands and to say to you, God, I've got nothing if I don't have your grace. So God, if there's something else that we're leaning on this morning, if there's something else that we're using to prop ourselves up or think that we're propping ourselves up in your sight, I pray that we just let them go. We'd open up our hands and we'd say, God, none of that is impressive in your kingdom. But you came even and especially for those that have nothing. So God, would you create in us the brokenness that Psalm 51 talks about? God, an awareness of our sin, an awareness of our shortcoming, an awareness of just how little we have and how you have everything we need, how you are everything that we need. And God, I pray that that would create worship and devotion in us. God, these things are things that can only be done by your spirit. And so we ask him to move. We invite him to move in our midst this morning. God, thank you for the message of Jesus. 
Thank you for coming down the ladder for us to meet us where we are and invite us into your family and into your kingdom. And so God, we ask that just as we began by grace, that you would help us to continue by grace. That we wouldn't forget about your radical acceptance of us when we had nothing to offer you. That we would continue to operate that way. I ask this in your name.